0: There is the force of nature, okay, mm-hmm. and all of us are natural beings, but we also have a consciousness, the possibility of symbolization, and Freud had talked about the death instinct. Yeah. Now, I think there is something coterminous with larger nature without consciousness and without sentience and with the death instinct. And I think that when people wish to die, there is a wish to reunite with some very deep primeval force, because death is a part of life in any case. So this was a philosophical thought that I had. And when I use the term, the problem of evil, for instance, as a psychoanalyst, we think about these things, about the nature of good, about ethics, about all kinds of things. Often when we see people behave in very gross and terrible ways, say people who are criminally insane, people who can gouge people's eyes out or behave without empathy and it's sort of like they lose what's particularly human Mm -hmm. and they lose the possibility of sentience. So they're more and more like blind instinct in a way, except they're using lesser capacity for symbolization. So I think that there is something about, it's not suicide really. What do you mean
1: by capacity for symbolization?
0: Uh, Human beings have a long evolution, maturation process psychologically. So when infants start out, they can't talk. And psychologically, they don't have a very separate sense of themselves. The way that the capacity for language grows within a child is based on very early caretaking experiences. Right. The capacity to be psychologically different and to be able to engage in what we call autonomous ego functioning, all of this is a process which is helped along by early caretakers. When this goes wrong or when there are constitutional factors... All kinds of problems may arise. But to go back to the question of death and suicide. Mm -hmm. So it was just a, a thought I had that there is a longing to go back to some state where you don't have to think, you don't have anxiety, where you don't have worry, where you can just go back to nature in a sense.
2: So the definition of what is life is derived from the possibility of dying. In fact, the life is a gift of death, you can say. The whole question that I am trying to invite you to think is that death uh, that is not just an objective biological event, but it is also an existential, ethical and cultural event. That is why we want to stop death or we want to prolong life and, uh, because it is existentially important. It's ethically important. And uh, suicide we want to stop because it is a cultural phenomenon. And then uh, it is a, how to say, a bad way of dying. What we should have is not to prolong life, but a good way of dying. What are some good Uh, ways of dying? We have to perhaps create cultural, social and existential situations in which it is possible to die with a certain uh, purpose. So it's a very old question of what does it mean to live a life or what is the meaning of life? I think. And in
1: a sense, you're equating good life to good death.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. That's That's the point that I wanted to uh, say. uh, That is important because uh, we are alive. If we, we are not alive, then that is not important. So that is important because as a living human being, we are destined to die. The whole question is that how to die beautifully or how to die at death which is not useless, not a banal death, or there is a technology of death. Let, like for example, in Hitler's time, Nazi time, there is a technology which produced death. Some six million people were being killed. And that is a technologically sophisticated way of killing. It's a technology of death. I think that's a bad way of dying. This is what I mean to say: bad way of dying. So technology is not really neutral. Technology is uh, dangerous. I'm not in, against technology, but I think it's a good way to wise to think of uh, how to use technology in terms of its use for human beings' existence.
3: The other way of looking at it is again coming back to Werner Herzog's uh, and also an example of walking on the ice, why is it so important is what is the ethics in that is it is the postponement of others' death. Mm. It is not, see, the postponement of death is a very important artistic act I would say it, it, Shira said for instance the, the storyteller of the Arabian Nights mm. Mm. That's the storyteller of the Arabian Nights tells the stories to postpone her own, her own death, death yes. <laughs> every night because, yeah. uh, so if you ask me why are you a fiction writer why are you a storyteller to me then I would also say that my other name is Shira said mm. I want to postpone my death that is why I tell you a story mm. but then what is a greater ethical position It is not postponing my death, but like when I was there, postponing somebody else's, the other's death. Mm. The postponement of the other's death is the more important, it has more important ethical value. That means that is something that I should have remembered all the time. (laughs) So it is not, how could I afford to forget it? So that what is forgotten and then what is remembered is important that we need to pass on. When we pass on heritage, we also pass on like this uh, fascist regimes producing art and architecture. At that also, we tell them that this is how it produced art and architecture. So that also need to be remembered. Yeah, mm. remember. Yes. In, yeah, if at all we need to postpone not only ours de- our Somebody death, death, but the community's death, others' death a nation's death, or the universal value of any other human being's death.
4: You know, I want to talk about something, again, getting back to Omidda. In anthropology, there is something very clearly, there is a distinction, and it is not in contradiction, that there is obviously the neurobiological, medical idea of emotion, which has been reduced down to compodiums in encyclopedias and then eventually because medicine works, with the ca- and no, sure. medicine works with the cause effect right so if sure. you're ill you need to be given this and that cannot be denied that it has an mm. effect but then there's another argument that particular idea of how do you know you're ill that's something again you know you're ill because you see other not ill right or you see somebody ill because he is not what you are right that's a very clear and that seeing both ways, I am ill because he's not ill, or I think he is ill because I am not ill, is fundamentally a matter of social, cultural perception that is within an ecosystem. And if that ecosystem changes- You
1: mean there are norms and- Yeah, for instance, there's a very famous study- I I couldn't just walk into a tribe and start reading emotions right away. For instance, there's
4: a very important, one of the earliest uh, ethnography of emotion, is by an anthropologist. I'm forgetting her name. I remember reading in in the school. She does an anthropology of emotion in the Eskimos, in uh, Mm. North Canada. I I think her last name is Briggs. I'm completely blanking on her name. Sure. Where she goes and she's working in this uh, family and she has a problem in negotiating with the main person, the father, uh, because he doesn't get angry. (laughs) And she's unable to conceptualize that why the anger is not coming out in the way she's used, to, right. although he is angry, but she's unable to read So there's are templates that Absolutely, we fall back Absolutely, I think on. that is mm. crucial. There are mm. templates that mm. we fall back that, on, that both is, for
1: experiencing as well as reading. But mm. that is crucial. But it's equally important that grief should be permitted and the person should be allowed to talk about it when the sorrow, conversations are important. Otherwise, you will have to send the person later to Santosh because then it becomes what he would call pathological grief. Grief becoming a disease. That is something that some people are not able to live you with. You mean this grief of childhood carrying over to adulthood? Does that happen Santosh?
5: Well, no, Could it
1: happen? I, How plausible is it?
5: Not really. And uh, I would uh, you know, allude to what uh, Dr. Raj Gopal said. Children are really not aware of the permanence of death till the age of about 7-8 years. And the first idea they get is about death of someone else. So it might be the death of a pet, or death may, maybe death of a bird or an animal, or maybe another relative. They become aware of their own death uh, at least three or four years after that, maybe around the age of 10, 11, 12 years. That is when they become aware that they might also die and then they might not come back and that's the permanence. Before that in childhood when they have, it's about toys and pets, but it's all very uh, impermanent. They think that my doll has died, but the doll comes back, you know, so they are able to uh, bring it back. But about pathological grief, it can happen. It is an abnormal grief. Sometimes it is very prolonged, sometimes it is very severe, sometimes it is something what we call as mummification. When people are not able to give away the things of the person who has died or they are not able to look at that person's picture or photograph or any of their belongings. They are not able to meet the friends of the person who has died. So that is when it requires you know, intervention. There is something which is also called as complicated grief. Mm-hmm. Complicated grief is even more pathological that it becomes a psychiatric disorder. So after the death of a person, sometimes people might get a depressive disorder. They might get an anxiety disorder, they can have a psychosis or they might develop alcoholism to control or to cope with their grief. So then when it becomes a psychiatric disorder, we call it as a complicated grief. But there are many forms of pathological grief. Some are delayed, some are inhibited, some are prolonged, some are various other descriptions which I have said. That is when
6: we need some intervention. That's a very broad picture I made, a so-called Cartesian picture. Many qualifications have to be done and that has to do with the distinction that Akhil suggested between two kinds of causality. Maybe they are not even two notions of causality, but causality and something else. Mm. That question of creating possible images or possible desires can arise even in the context of real biological determinism. That's been the central issue about the question of death, for example. That uh, we are kind of constrained by the very idea of being a biological entity, and therefore, a certainty of demise, a certainty of death. In some ways, in some conception of freedom, that kind of throttles your freedom. So you create the possible space or a possible world in which that freedom of transcending death also applies. So, you know, all sorts of metaphysical theories about the transference of soul and the other world and this and that, but the whole theory of Atman and everything, that falls in place basically to exercise... Create a possible world to exercise your freedom. Okay, one may or may not agree with that notion of freedom, or whether it is even sensible to talk about some notion of freedom in the case of what is biological determinism. A great paper by Thomas Nagel, for example. Right? Question: Whether it's meaningful to ask, how do I handle the constraints of death? For example, it's probably not even a meaningful question. But there are other cases where the possibilities can be created, imagined, where uh, it can be realized within within the world. They are not bound by any kind of biological, natural determinism, but some kind of social determinism. For him, sacrifice
7: is not some exalted or unusual thing, but in fact it's built into the structure of everyday life. He argues, for instance, that everyone knows that parents will sacrifice for their children, children will sacrifice for their parents, lovers will sacrifice for each other, friends will sacrifice for one another, and that no human society can exist without sacrifice. And sacrifice is a way of taking violence and turning it inwards so as to give it moral purpose. So if, in fact, all human relations are built upon sacrifice in some sense, then Gandhi's question is, how can we actually expand the realm of sacrifice and for him sacrifice is also crucial because it is fundamentally democratic and this is Gandhi in his character as a would-be democrat.
1: Democratic in the sense that everybody can do it. Everyone everybody can, can sacrifice. fast but everybody cannot kill. Everybody can what? fast unto death but in what sense do you mean
7: democratic? Well for instance if you take quite everyday conventional views of moral action often we think they depend upon choice right you have to choose the right thing to do. For Gandhi, this actually doesn't work because choice depends upon knowledge. Knowledge depends upon class, education, so many gender, things. many such so things. So this
1: is a way of incorporating ignorance and compulsion. Exactly.
7: In a, in a way, it's a radical ignorance. Right. For him, sacrifice is truly democratic because everyone has something to sacrifice.
8: We are made up of elements, yeah. defy elements, like in every other philosophy he mentions that. Earth, mm. water, fire, air, sure. ether, space. Now, today's medicine has intervention in these four elements. Earth aspect, water aspect, fire, where you have these interventions through these three elements. Or, like I said, air, the breath. But what about the fifth element, space? Today's medicine has not thought about that. That's why we have these complete sciences, you know, of our In what, sense, in what sense do you now, use Now, space. To... Now, in asana, when I'm doing a posture... Mm -hmm. I'm also accessing the space within me. Right. How to create space. How to compress the space. Now that is a major force in healing. Since we are talking about healing it's very important to know that I have to work on five elements within me if I have to augment this process. Otherwise it's very limiting. So space which is within me through the asana through my practice i have the power to some kind of
1: homeodynamic space almost which increases your vitality absolutely there are
8: spaces within us Mm -hmm. so when i'm doing various postures i have this ability to either like i said expand the space where it's compressed for example the joints you Mm -hmm. know there are spaces in the joints Mm -hmm. there are cavities within us so how to access that space also within us
9: for example, <laughs> my niece who is a pediatrician used to tell me when she was a young intern at the hospital in Madras that hundreds of poor patients would queue up. Right. And they all had the same kind of pain. And in Tamil, it's called KKK. means kai, kal, korachal. Kai that? means hand, kal means leg, korachal means a harrowing kind of pain as if somebody has put a screwdriver inside you and is turning it around. As if it would all line up because they all wanted to be admitted to the hospital. Right. Because they were overworked, they were poor. Right. And they probably wanted a bed and they wanted food. But the doctors wouldn't admit them because they were all accused of malingering. And the pain was seen to be illegitimate, which we don't know. I mean, there's no way of finding out whether they're actually malingering or not. And they, they felt that hospital resources were likely to be abused by people who were malingering. So they did treat them by giving them distilled water injections. <laughs> and Anise uh, tells me that it worked in half the cases, <laughs> and which means it proved to the doctors they were indeed malingering. But then it's entirely moot. Maybe they were not malingering. It was like a placebo and it worked. So pain has many dimensions to it.
1: But, and, uh, but uh, clearly there have to be ways beyond relying on the patient's testimony to assess nature of the pain. And can you do the equivalent of MRI when, uh, or things of that nature? That's
10: going back to the disease. Right. I mean, you can assess the disease by doing all these investigations. But to assess the quantity and the quality of the pain, because you're treating the pain, we're not treating the disease. I yeah. mean, we treat the disease to cure the pain, no doubt. Yeah. But here we're talking about treating the pain. So the only way we can really quantify it is by giving them the medication and finding out the response. Because if it was really a severe pain, then the patient would possibly be very drowsy the next day because we gave them too much medication. Other way around, if the patient said it was 5 and actually it was very severe, the medication would not have worked. And by tomorrow, we need to up the medication to the third step of the WHO ladder. One possibility is we started retrieving our dead relatives back from scavengers and predators. And this is important because killing human is, of course, there is some cost for the predator. After spending that, if they are not allowed to eat because others come and take the dead body back, then killing humans is not profitable for the predator. A good evidence for this is so many times in the written record, whenever death rituals were given up, by a community Uh living close to a forest. Incidence of man-eaters increased immediately after that.
1: Oh, is that so? So, this happened, Mm.
10: so so there is a record of this after the Second World War in Burma, Uh in Myanmar, where because of jungle warfare, so many soldiers were dead and were not found. Immediately after the Second World War, the incidence of man-eating by tigers increased. The same record is there in uh, Kumao, Himalayas, after influenza epidemic.
1: Right. Okay. right.
10: There is a similar story in Africa, there is a similar story in Madhya Pradesh, where following large-scale deaths and where the dead could not be cremated or buried, there is an incidence of man-eating.
1: That's interesting. Mm.
10: So, after mm. people started giving ritual treatments to their dead, they mm-hmm. systematically discouraged predators, mm-hmm. and then the ecology changed substantially. There is a sudden right. growth of material culture because now you can have possessions. Right. Right. Once you have possessions, nomadism becomes more and more difficult. Then you are forced to settle in one place. If you settle in one place and forage around for a sufficiently long time, yeah. then you tend to overconsume the natural food resources. And then you are compelled to grow your own food. Okay, yeah. So, this is yeah. a logical chain of events,
1: yeah. which yeah. begins
10: with burials. So, I think that burials and the, the sudden burst of material culture after burials cannot be a coincidence. There right. is a logical link behind that.
1: So is there any result or way to say how many times a cell divides before...
11: It stops dividing? Yeah. Yes, there are ways to measure it, absolutely. And people do measure it. What is less understood is when does the cell know when to stop to divide?
1: So that would be the time of cell death, apoptosis, or not much, ne- not much necessarily. before that?
11: Cells sometimes don't die and they exist. Like your neurons, for instance, they don't die. You have a neuron, it's born, its precursor goes back into quiescence. And the existing neuron doesn't divide, but it continues to work. Your muscle cell is also another So when you say it that. goes into
1: quiescence, it becomes dormant?
11: It becomes dormant. So the right. stem cell itself becomes dormant. But the cell which grew out of that stem cell and became a mature neuron, it doesn't die. Hmm. The muscle doesn't die. The hmm. cell remains. So I don't think that there is just dividing and after dividing you die. No, you divide and you can stay around for a very long time. And you can stay around for a fixed period of time. So blood cells, for instance, there is turnover taking place in them and they're continuously renewed and there are cells which don't die. We still don't understand at the cellular level, let alone the organism level, as to what is the link between a given cell type and its longevity or a given niche stem cell and how many times it divides. And obviously, those are very important biological questions.
12: You see, because the venom is most important for the snake himself because it is a very prestigious molecule for him as a store to get food. Yes. Ultimately when it insect to the rat, rat gets paralysed or bleed to death because it takes near about few hours to rat to bite because snake cannot swallow the living rat. Yes. So ultimately around that after biting to the prey, snake stays a couple of hours around that prey. So when it paralyzes it swallows. Because we have noted a crate bite, which is a very poisonous snake, uh-huh. when it bites to a person during the early direction of midnight. And many times we found snake in the bed or corner of the house. And that is our <laughs> incidents which came out that you know, many times you see crate is the most venomous snake, but it doesn't cause local manifestations or bite mark at all. Oh. So victim is unaware. That he is by the snake. He says, I got a rat bite, ant bite, and no but bite at all. there could be a
1: crate hanging around somewhere.
12: Oh, yes. <laughs> that, that many times we found the patient or relative bring the big crate. Doctor, can you see? This is a big crate found around him. It might be bitten. So that's how you all my knowledge how to diagnose a crate bite.
13: I have a feeling that at some stage there is no distinction made between consciousness and awareness. Mm -hmm. But there is certainly a distinction to be made and the distinction will be valid. Uh, What uh, Shesir is saying, awareness, for example, I'm aware that I have my hands and fingers. But if an insect bites me and I have pain, then I'm conscious of that pain. So consciousness is more directed at a certain object. Awareness is general. I can't say that I have hands and I have feet, but I know that I have this entire body or where I am. So
1: awareness I, is not directed consciousness. Not directed. I mean, we can yes. pick, a, pick and yeah. choose our words. Yeah. but awareness so this is, is more spiky. This is of yeah. an event.
13: Consciousness is more object-oriented. So
1: awareness is not eventful. It's Awa- not an event.
13: Yes. Awareness is not an event. Yes, you can say that not a happening. Awareness is a general state of your brain. And uh, so when you say thoughtless awareness simply means your mind gets free of thought and then you are generally aware. That doesn't mean that I am all the time thinking about something or my brain is processing. I gave an example of these village women going with pictures on their heads where they are talking, laughing, everything. But the picture remains where it is. It doesn't fall down. and It doesn't fall down. They are doing other things. But the picture remains because that awareness remains.
1: In fact, that's the kind of awareness where you're necessarily unconscious of it. Yes. But you're in, still what? I mean, you're paying attention to You're aware to it of somehow. this, but
13: you're not doing anything. <laughs> you're not conscious. The moment you become conscious of that, then maybe there will be problems. But awareness and consciousness can be distinguished in terms of one being localized and the other being very general, non-objectified.
14: How do I remake my body? How do I how do I feel good with my body? How do I jettison these marked bodies of certain kinds without becoming body despisers? Feel good about my body, you know. You no, know, this is the challenge. This is the struggle.
1: Can anything be disembodied, Vishnu? Uh,
14: no, the, the, according to me, nothing can be disembodied. But 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 disembodied is an is an idea, will never disappear. Yeah, because disembodied is like a thought experiment yeah it's just like imagining for a second you imagine that you are not in Mumbai yeah sure but you are placed yourself in Palestine
1: sure
14: what did you say you said I'm not in Palestine how can I be uh, imagine myself in Palestine the, the only request is but that it you goes imagine. hand in
1: hand with the idea of
14: imagination yeah there's an yeah. imagination which allows you to distance and and, and that is where the fully disembodied but there to say that you are not completely trapped by your own embodiment you know that right. is the idea otherwise how would the society be possible if I only think of a body which is in Bangalore and Baroda or Odia uh, my caste my this thing that thing where would I go beyond it how can I go beyond it because without going beyond it no society is possible
1: can anything be disembodied Kim I would say no Like if everybody stopped practicing martial arts uh, it, it, it would just die what would happen
12: can anything be disembodied I would say my, my my inclination right now is to say no, because even everything is, you're still thinking through a body.
1: Yeah, there's a substrate, something, yeah.
12: So you may not be present in your body when you're imagining or when you're remembering or when you're daydreaming, but it's still happening through your body.
1: Can you uh, cosmetically I mean, create a baby or whatever, which which has all these mutations, which prevents that? Baby from getting yeah, at least an identifiable list of diseases. So, a, identifiable a question, list of diseases is what is important. I mean, right. you
10: you can only let's say theoretically that you have the technology to do this. Yeah, you can only do it for diseases that you or infectious agents that you know of. Yeah. So, for example, it is estimated that of all the viruses that have been characterized so far only constitute about 2% of the viral population that is out there. So we don't even know 90%. Yeah,
1: but we know, but we know a very large proportion of the causes of death, and right? So that 98% bulk of them are probably not causing infections or so on. So what, on and what and you don't
10: know is, if you created such a human, what other things that human would be susceptible to? That's fair. That you don't know. So if you're getting to the question of whether you can create a mutant human who would live forever, the
7: answer is no. I think the 20th century, one thing it has taught us, I hope, is this idea of bioengineering, which lay at the heart of eugenics. The science, so-called science of eugenics, it has caused the deaths of millions of people. It it took a perverse turn, Mohan. Uh, Even before it took a perverse turn, the idea itself was perverse. The idea itself was perverse and completely unscientific, and it appealed to people's prejudices about everybody else. And so you had a situation where the entire scientific community across the world was chasing up something which was not just absurd, but horrendous. You know,
10: like if all the human beings were to die, I don't know if other people will notice so much.
15: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure with human beings they will. <laughs> Lots of organisms will <laughs> notice that we are dead. <laughs> no, no, They'll no, be no. very happy I, about if, if, if
1: all the human beings were to die, <laughs> uh, is is that an ecological event at all? Is that a geological event? Well, that's an event. It's like dinosaurs sure. died, no? <laughs> <laughs> no yes.
10: Ecological
3: am not? Okay. No, uh, no, some species, sure.
1: very major ones and big classes of things have died, and the world has gone on. So, for example, and if you we were to look at, let's say, island ecologies or whatever, mm-hmm. and one has to figure out some way of boxing something, uh, is it likely that the extinction of one species kills the ecosystem? It Depends on what species the ecosystem, But has it happened? Yeah, there are these
15: things known as keystone species. That's mm-hmm. a concept in ecology. Uh-huh. That certain species are a lot more important for the... So one is a lot
1: more, so that's gradual, more than the other. No, no. Hmm. A
15: lot more important than what is suggested by their numerical abundance. So take for example, you take out all the grass from a grassland. Yeah. The ecosystem collapses. Yeah. But then the grass is the most abundant thing in an ecosystem. So it's a no-brainer, right? Yeah. But let's say you have, uh, let's say you take out the pollinators from a system. Yeah. Okay. If you take out the pollinators, they are not very large in number. Yeah. But... You take them out, and in certain cases, the ecosystem can collapse. Is, are
1: human beings keystone species? No, we are extremely abundant.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, but our contribution related to our abundance.
15: Uh, we See, the point is, certain kinds of ecosystems are dependent on human beings to exist. So, for example, the agricultural field is uh, an ecosystem.
1: You that's could, fine. Hmm. That's fine. But so, similar, for the earth... Hmm. For Earth, are human beings
14: keystone species? No. No way.
1: No
15: way. No way. The Earth will be very happy if we are dead, I guess. Um, In fact, probably it would be no, better I, I, yeah. if we didn't exist. <laughs> we are doing a lot of things to damage it. Exactly. The species diversity will go up for sure. <laughs> Absolutely.
10: Yeah, I'm being one of them and I don't know what the rest of the Earth thinks. I think we have our perspective. In our perspective, human beings dying would be a very bad thing. And I don't know what other species would think.
1: That. They might <laughs> clap. No, they, I, they might clap when they go. They might, they might not. We might get not, a standing ovation. Though, no, I understand.
10: Go. But you know, <laughs> I am saying that
1: something will <laughs> go on.